Our uh, first statement says that uh, we believe in the one true God who exists eternally in three persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the creator of all things that have been created, both visible and invisible. Now, there's a whole lot more that could be said about God, obviously, but since we were trying to make a statement of faith rather than a uh, uh, write a library, uh, we kind of kept it to the, to the absolute essentials there. Would you stand with me and let's read a couple of passages of Scripture as we go into this today. Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. And then Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the revelation of who you are. I thank you that you're here, that you're present in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would reveal more of yourself to us today and may it make a, a, a change, a significant difference in our lives and the way that we live them. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the beginning... <coughs> We knew God, and yes, I'm still doing this, but it's a whole lot better than it was last week. In the beginning, we knew God. He uh, would walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden, and, he, and they, they saw him face to face. And then uh, something happened. The fall took place, and we'll be talking about that a little bit more when we get to that portion of our statements of faith. Uh, but after the fall and before redemption, we could no longer approach this holy God. It, it, and it wasn't just a matter of God going, well, you know, you've been naughty, so you can't get close to me now. No, that's not how he is. He cannot change, and he is holy. And anything unholy entering his presence directly is just simply destroyed. That's how powerful holiness is. And the only way that we could enter his presence after that would be for him to not be holy anymore. We don't want that. And he can't do that anyway. So, yeah, I didn't mean to click another button, but after the fall, we, uh, we became attracted to unholy spiritual beings and we began to worship them as gods. Uh, virtually all of the cultures of the world begin to worship multiple gods, many, many gods. And th these spiritual beings, they, ex they existed then, they still exist now. Spiritual beings don't, don't die out like, uh, like these physical bodies do. So, I mean, they're, they're still around, and they were, they were fallen angels. They were, they were demons. It says over in uh, Deuteronomy 32, Moses is talking about, uh, uh, about the Israelites. He says they made them 
They made him, God, jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, which are not gods. Demons are real. They really exist. And they didn't, they didn't just disappear with the Old Testament either. Paul says over in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, the sacrifice of, of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. So when you're, you know, when you're messing around with you know, whatever the other gods may be, whether it's the gods behind the, the Ouija board or the gods behind the, the astrological reading or whether it's the gods behind the, you know, this stuff. Those are spirits of demons that are, that are literally being worshipped there. That's, that's something that's uh, very important to not get messed, messed up, not get involved with. And then God came along and revealed himself as one God to Moses. Moses is really the one that he, that he gave this revelation through to bring to mankind, and, and, he, and he made it pretty strong. I mean, he re- reinforced it very heavily. We talked last week about the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. There are, there are no other gods besides him. Over in Deuteronomy 6, Moses says, we read it, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength. This is the beginning of a Hebrew prayer called the Shema. And it's the central prayer of the, of the Hebrew prayer book. And it's usually the first, the first prayer that Jewish boys and girls will learn will be the Shema. And so the first thing, that they, first thing that, they, that they learn is the Lord our God. The Lord is one. He is one. There is no other besides him. And as you read through the, as you read through the major prophets uh, in Scripture... You see over and over again where they're bringing warnings about worshiping other gods. They're bringing warnings about having allegiance to others and where the Lord is saying, hey, I'm the only one. Don't you get it? Don't you understand? When you make an idol and you set it in front of you, I, 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 love, what, uh, I love the way that, uh, that Isaiah puts it because it's, kind of, it's one of those does that, uh, that the prophets write about. He says, nobody thinks. I cut this tree down. And with half of it, I baked a loaf of bread, and with half of it, I made a God. Nobody stops to think, what is this detestable thing that I've made here? And so it was through Moses that he brought this revelation. And when, when God allowed his people to be sent into captivity, and that happened actually twice, the northern kingdom of Israel was, was sent into uh, in, in the captivity around 700 B.C., they went into captivity into Assyria, and then the southern kingdom of Judah went into captivity in Babylon uh, around 100 years later, and I say around 100 years because there were actually three deportations. Uh, the last one was 587 B.C., so. Uh, but the reason why they were, they were sent is because they had turned and they had worshipped other gods. Concerning Israel, when they, were, uh, when they were taken into captivity in Assyria, it says all this took place because the Israelites worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. And then when Judah was taken into captivity, Jeremiah was a prophet at that time. And, and uh, the, the remnant that was left, he spoke to them and said, uh, uh, this is the reason why that all happened. They provoked me to anger by burning incense and by worshiping other gods that neither uh, they nor you nor your for, uh, fathers ever knew. Therefore, my fierce anger was poured out 
It raged against the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem and made them the desolate ruins that they are today. I, the, the worst thing, the worst sin that you can bring to God is to worship another God. And the reason why is not just because he's, not just because he's jealous, not just because he's kind of like, oh, Noah, here's competition. It's because he knows what those gods will do to you. Inevitably, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy has no other agenda. And those gods did not die out once again with the, uh, with the Old Testament. Paul says in Corinthians, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. One God and Father of all who is above all and over all and, and in all. In a world with many gods, we get to choose our own brand. The world with many gods, we get, to, we get to be the consumer. And the gods are out there vying for our consumer attention, vying for our consumer dollar. But here's the problem. The problem is this means that there's no such thing as truth. There's just our taste. And if I don't like this god, I'll go get this one. And if this one isn't satisfying me very much, I'll, I'll, I'll vote for this one. I'll take this one. And there's, there's no account. The only thing that matters is what I want, what I desire, what I like. But if there's only one God, then the only thing that matters is truth. And it's not a matter of do I like it or do I not like it. I mentioned last week, Paul said, we can do nothing against the truth, only for it. We can, we can only stand for it. it. It will prevail, period. It is what it is. And unless we understand that there's one God, we're not going to believe that this even exists because it doesn't, apart from there being only one God. And so we have one God. One of the truths about this one God is that he has revealed himself to us as Father. You guys have a great Father's Day. We'll see you next week. He's revealed himself to us as Father. That's what we've been taught as Christians. In fact, Jesus said if you, when, when, we, when, when the disciples, and I say we because we did in them, went to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray, he said, this is how you do it. Our Father in heaven that's who you're praying to hallowed be your name paul says over in romans 8 15 you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear but you received the spirit of sonship and by him we cry abba father daddy god <laughs> when my dad was alive i loved it because uh he and wayne kind of had this thing going because Wayne loved to say, Daddy, God. And my dad was going, he ain't Daddy, he's Father. And I go, well, he's both. That's great. Have it both ways. Uh, Father's Day is a difficult day for a lot of people in this country. There may not be a more difficult thing to be in our culture than a father. Maybe the most difficult thing that there is. It's very, it's very confusing sometimes what that role is supposed to be, how you're supposed to fulfill it. 
on the one on the one hand you're supposed to be this man you know and bring home the bacon and you know and on the other hand you're supposed to you know get in touch with your feminine side whatever that is you know and 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 be this loving gentle whatever and then and you're doing this in the midst of a culture that is totally aimed at trying to fuel and and call forth the lust that are in your life it's it's a, it's a tough place to be and it's easy to lose your way and because of that it's easy to do a lot of damage uh, damage that you didn't even know that you had the capacity to do as a father it's a it's a tough thing and some have trouble with the concept of father because our earthly fathers and life in a fallen world but rather than than look away from the obvious today I want to I want to look straight into the father's heart and we're going to do a couple of things with that uh, the father's heart is often not easy to see uh, it's often kind of camouflaged uh, behind disappointment behind fear behind failure behind all kinds of things and yet it's there it doesn't go away I've asked Paula to come in and share a story from her life that happened here just recently and uh, yeah we'll need to put her in definitely in the light and so she's gonna she's gonna share a few moments uh, with you uh, and then I'm gonna share a few other things would you welcome Paula Parker It was 5.10 on March the 1st when my older brother David called me to tell me that our father had died. He had been found dead in the bar where he worked and where he lived. From all appearances, daddy had suffered a heart attack. Our younger brother, Tony, lived about 20 miles away from daddy. Tony was closing his office and driving to the bar as my brother David and I spoke. David was planning to drive from New Mexico to Texas the next day. I wasn't sure if Mike and I were going to be able to go, but I told David I would get back with him as soon as we knew. I hung up the phone as sobs erupted deep from within. I cried not just for my dad, but also for the thought that I didn't know whether he was in heaven or hell. As far back as I can remember, my daddy drank, mostly beer, occasionally whiskey. When I was a child, he had one or two beers each evening, more on the weekends. As I grew older, the amount that he drank increased. Never affected his work, but it did affect his home life. Whenever he was drinking, he was abusive to me or my brothers or my sister Susan. Not physically. Daddy's abuse to us was verbal. He was a gifted poet, and he could weave words into the most beautiful imagery. But he could also use them to condemn, to criticize or humiliate us. When we would dissolve into tears, he would laugh and tell us that he was just teasing, that if he didn't love us, he wouldn't tease us. When he was drunk, it was worse, and often full of obscenities. My mother took us kids to a Baptist church, and we all gave our hearts to the Lord. However, over the years, I would be the only one who would continue to follow Jesus. I attended church as often as I could. As much as I found solace in the body of Christ, I confess that when I looked at my friends whose parents were Christian, and whose whole family were active in the churches, I wondered why I had been born into the home of an alcoholic. I tried witnessing to Daddy, but it never made any difference. He didn't mind if I went to church, but he didn't want to hear about religion. 
When I was 16, my parents divorced. Mama moved us into a small apartment, and Daddy moved into a trailer about 20 miles away. For the first year, we saw him several times each month, and he soon introduced us to his living girlfriend, Kayla, whom he would later marry. After a while, he stopped making the effort to see us. When Mike and I married, we moved seven hours away to West Texas. Whenever we would go home to visit Mama, we would go out and see Daddy. It felt awkward, as if I was visiting a stranger. Later, Daddy and Kayla started running a bar, and if we wanted to see him, we had to go there. Whenever he did, whenever we did, he was generally drunk. Those visits never lasted more than a half an hour. Before we would left, I would always say, Daddy, I love you. And he would always reply, you're a good girl. When our children were born, we would take them to see Daddy, but he still spent most of his time at the bar. At first, we would take the kids inside the bar for a few minutes, and after a while, we would just drive up, and he would come out into the parking lot and stand and talk to me and the kids. I felt guilty taking my children to there, and it was obvious they were uncomfortable. In 1990, when our youngest daughter, Mary, was born, I told Mike we were never going to that bar again. That was the last time I saw my daddy. It didn't matter that we drove many hours from West Texas and later from Tennessee to visit my family. I would occasionally call daddy during those visits, hoping that maybe he would meet us at Susan's house. But he was always too busy to leave the bar. In 1995, I felt the Holy Spirit tell me to write daddy a letter. It took many attempts before I could do it. I wrote Daddy that I was sorry for anything I might have done to break our relationship. I told him I wanted to get to know him again and wanted him to get to know me and my children. A week later, he called me. That was the second time in my adult life that my dad had called me. The first time had been after the time when our first child, Rachel, was born. Daddy told me he had received my letter and he didn't know that there was anything wrong with our relationship. He said, you know how I feel about you. How do I know that, Daddy? I asked. We haven't spoken in seven years. All daddies love their kids, was his response. I let it go, feeling that it was a tenuous step in the right direction. We agreed to write each other, which was something. Daddy's vision was very poor, and he had trouble reading, much less writing. For several months, we exchanged letters, but after a while, he stopped writing. A while later, I did too. Susan kept me updated about Daddy. I struggled with the idea of how I could show my children that honoring your parents was not something you did only if they were good Christians. I don't think I did a very good job. By this time, I realized that my daddy's behavior skewed how I viewed God. Mike has always been a wonderful father, and I've never had problems seeing Jesus as my bridegroom. But seeing God as my heavenly father, well, that was another thing. Even though I was thankful that Mike was a great husband and a wonderful father to our children, it didn't hurt, heal the hurt inside, and I struggled to see God as a loving father. One night, I spent a long time in prayer for my daddy, and when the image of the Mona Lisa came to mind, God showed me that while there's only one Mona Lisa, there are millions of copies of the masterpiece. No one condemns the copies for not being exactly like the original, he told me. I am the original father. Do not condemn your earthly father for not being exactly like me. In 2003, I was reading Matthew 6, the passage where Jesus tells his disciples to study the flowers and the birds. When I read verse 26, 
Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? It hit me. All these years I had believed I was not much worth more than a bird to God. Whenever bad things happened to me, I never got mad at God. It wasn't because I was so godly. It was because I believed that God loved me, that he cared for me, that he provided for me all that I was worth, which wasn't very much. I dropped to the floor and I began weeping. And then I stood up and I began confessing, I am worth much more. I am worth the blood of Jesus. I am worth much more. I felt healing begin. And I walked around days confessing that, almost like a mantra. The next month, my sister died unexpectedly. Although Susan had been the only one of us kids to keep up with Daddy, to call to visit him, he didn't even come to her funeral. He didn't even call. To say I was angry at Daddy is to diminish what I felt. I was thankful that I had recently had that amazing revelation from the Lord because I needed it. The adversary began attacking, telling me I wasn't worth enough to God to even have a daddy who cared to come to his daughter's funeral. While I told Satan I was worth much more, the hurt about Susan hardened my heart towards daddy. Over the next several years, the only contact I had with daddy was to send him a card on his birthday and one at Christmas. I continued to pray for him and asked God to send someone to tell daddy about the love of Jesus. I struggled with these feelings that I had for my dad. In 2009, I went forward during an altar call and spoke with Hal Laughlin. I told him a little bit about Daddy. I guess I hoped Hal would absolve me from having anything more to do with Daddy. And I was shocked at his response. Call him, he said. Call him this week. He told me that he had had a strained relationship with his dad and had reached out to him and that his dad had turned to the Lord. I knew Hal was right, but it took nearly a week to make that call. After all, every time I'd called my daddy in the past, he had been drunk. But I knew that was just an excuse. I finally called my brother Tony and got daddy's phone number. And I called my daddy early the next morning, hoping that I would catch him before he'd had too many beers. Once he realized who I was, daddy said, I'm so glad you called. I was going to get your number from Tony and call you. We talked for about half an hour. He told me he was healthy for someone his age. I told him about our children. He was excited to learn that Mike and I were professional writers and asked me to send him samples of things I had written. He told me he still had all the letters and cards that I had sent him. And I nearly started crying when at one point in our conversation, Daddy stopped and said, you sound so beautiful. He went on to say that he had said many things to me and my siblings over the years that were wrong and that he was sorry. As we said goodbye, I said, I love you, Daddy. And he responded, I love you too. My daddy told me he loved me. I wept and I shouted praises to the Lord. After that, I wrote Daddy every month and I sent him pictures of the kids. Daddy never wrote back, but I didn't expect him to. I knew his vision was poor. When my books, Yahweh the Flood, the Fish and the Giant, and Yeshua, the King, the Demon, and the Traitor were published, I sent him copies and signed them, telling him that I got my love of writing from him. I doubted that he would read them, knowing how he felt about religion and the fact that these books were written for preteens, but I wanted to honor his request for my writing. 
I got updates about Daddy from my brother Tony, including the fact that Kayla had died and that Daddy had moved into a small bar, into a small room in the bar they ran. It saddened me to think of him living there, and it grieved me to learn that he died there. It grieved me even more to wonder where his eternal spirit was. At first, I thought about not going to the funeral. I'm not one of those who need closure from funerals. However, I decided I needed to be there with my brothers. I called them on Saturday and told them Mike and I would be leaving Monday morning. There were, they said they were going to clean out Daddy's things that day, and I asked if they would find something as a memento for me. We would have left for Texas on Sunday, but we had meetings we had to attend after church. Throughout the day, I had so many hugs and loving comments from people about my dad. When I passed Renee and Alan Smith, Renee reached out to hug me, and I broke down in tears and told them I didn't know where Daddy was. They prayed for me, and Alan told me this was a time to trust in the grace of God that only he knew. Tammy Dozier prayed for me, as did Pastor Ronnie and everyone in the meeting that we attended that afternoon. We got to Tony's house at 5 Monday evening. Shortly after we arrived, David said he had something of Daddy's for me. He left the room and returned with a Bible and Daddy's glasses, and inside the Bible was a laminated copy of Susan's obituary. My Daddy who had never thought much about religion, had owned a Bible, marked by a memory of Susan. I choked back tears as I stroked the cover and silently thanked God for this small spark of hope for Daddy's eternal spirit. After hearing from other family members, it appeared there might only be a dozen people at Daddy's service. My brothers asked Mike to conduct the service and deliver Daddy's eulogy, to which he responded he would be honored. We spent the evening trying to remember things about Daddy that Mike could use, how Daddy had been a marbles champion, how he'd always stand up for the underdog, he worked with his hands and could fix any machine, how he loved history, was very patriotic, and was honored to serve in the Army, and how he loved to build things. David remembered how Daddy would get up early in the morning, and while he drank his coffee, he would write down a few lines of poetry. Then he would leave them on the table for me to finish when I got up. The family was to meet at the funeral home an hour before the service. David went early to pick up Kayla's daughter. When we arrived, David introduced me to my stepsister, Nancy. After a few minutes of conversation, Nancy asked me, are you the one who wrote the books? I was surprised, but I said, yes, I had written two books. Your daddy was so proud of them, she said. He let me read them, and I really enjoyed them. I thanked her and, and turned as another woman walked in. She introduced herself as Betty. Kayla's sister, and after expressing her sorrow over Daddy, she said, you're the one who wrote the books, right? She told me that Daddy had showed them to her and told her she needed to read them, and she said they were wonderful. Over the next hour, I met more of Kayla's family. After extending their condolences, they would each comment on my books and how much they had enjoyed reading them. Betty came back again to talk about the books. She said that Daddy would show them to his friends at the bar, and he would say, now you take these books and you read them, you pass them around, and then you get them back to me. She asked if I had those books, and I said, no, my brothers hadn't found them among Daddy's things. Oh, they're probably with one of David's friends, she said. He loaned them out to everybody. I'm sure they'll show up. If they do, I told her, would you please keep them? I'm sure Daddy would want you to have them. Your Daddy was a believer, she told me. He might not have been like other people going to church and all, but he believed. And then she looked at me with a slight smile and she said, he's coming back soon. 
I knew who she meant, and I said, I look for Jesus every day. And then I told her, you know, for years I prayed that God would send someone to tell my daddy about the Lord. Thank you for being that person. The funeral was brief, and as we turned to leave to follow the coffin out of the chapel, I was surprised to see the room was packed with people. Walking toward the car, I heard a man say, it's the lady in purple. As I was wearing a purple blouse, I turned around to see a man in a vibrant orange t-shirt walking towards me. Are you David's daughter? He asked. I am. I extended my hand. His breath smelled of beer and he slurred his words, but he was crying as he took my hand. Your daddy was such a nice man. He showed me your books and told me to read them. They were wonderful. He kept repeating how much he had enjoyed reading my books and what a wonderful friend my daddy had been. The graveside service was brief and before they lowered the coffin, I took a rose out of an arrangement and laid it on the top. The man in the orange t-shirt also took a flower and laid it on the coffin then shook my hand again and told me how much he missed my daddy and how much he enjoyed my books. As Mike and I drove home the next day, we didn't talk much, but mostly just listened to music. I couldn't stop thinking about everything that had happened during the funeral. When Jason's Gray's song, Nothing is Wasted, came on, it hit me. Everything in my life had led up to that moment. God had taken all the hurtful things in my life and used them to make me the person I am today. He arranged for me to write two books of children's story, Bible stories meant for children, but my daddy would take those books and share them with his friends, most of whom were alcoholics like him, people who would probably never step side inside a church, people who probably had someone praying for them as I had been praying for daddy. My daddy, David Daniel Dean, an unlikely evangelist. I felt like I was standing under a waterfall, being washed clean of all past hurts and scars. It's not over, I told Mike. I will see daddy again. never know. You never know what's uh, going on inside of somebody else's heart. What's going on inside of somebody else's life. Especially when it comes to fathers. My favorite uh, parable in the Bible is, of course, the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, as a, uh, as a prodigal myself, I, uh, I definitely have always related to it from that side. Uh, I've tried to never be an older brother, but I've met a few of them, and I may have been one myself a time or two. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I can relate to it from the other side. I can relate to it from the side of the father. Because uh, even though the Lord has really, you know, blessed us with our kids and our, none of them have, have strayed and none of them have turned away from the Lord, uh, believe it or not, children like, like daddies are never perfect either. And, you know, so there are times when you may have some disappointments or there are times when you may wonder, okay, where is this going 
will this ever come back around? Uh, and it puts me in mind each time of the, of the father and the prodigal son, because that's who our God is. I mean, the son came to him and said, you know, give me, give me what belongs to me. Give me my inheritance. And the father, knowing full well that as soon as he gives it to him, he's going to be gone. And as soon as he's gone, it's going to be wasted. And the only, the only real hope is that someday he's going to come back. And that's how God feels about us. That, when we start out, he gives us our inheritance. He gives us our talents. He gives us our gifts. He gives us our youth. He gives us our strength. And so often we go and we waste them in a foreign country, and yet he's the one who would tell his son, you go and redeem them. I have one other thing I want to read to you. This, uh, this coming year, first of the year, I hope to do a, uh, I hope to direct a play up in the black box. It's not one that enough people come to see to do it down here, but it's a, it's a really wonderful play. It's very funny, actually. It's a... It's about a young man who, uh, and his uh, two sets of grandparents in New Jersey, they uh, live together, and he's trying to move to Seattle, and his grandparents are doing everything in the world to try and keep him there. They're both first-generation Italian immigrants, and so they're, they're so desperate, they even, they even try and hook him up with an Irish girl to, you know, keep him, keep him in town, but uh, that doesn't seem to be working, but while it's funny, it also has its moments, and one of those moments occurs where, uh, where Nick, that's the boy, is talking to, his, uh, to his, one of his grandfathers, and he says, hey, Gramps, <coughs> how about another story? Uh, I can't tell stories like, like nuns. No, no, I mean one that's, that's all true. Tell me, uh, tell me, what was it like to leave your family? Why do you want to know that, Nick? He was a fisherman, right? Uh, your dad. Why, why did he make you leave? You know the problem with old stories, Nick. You, you, you tell them and you realize that people don't change. People do the same things over and over again. When I was a little boy, every Christmas morning on the cobblestones in town, there would appear this, this sea of vendors. Their, their carts covered with toys. And, and, and what I remember most is the colors. Bright reds and blues and oranges like a rainbow of toys and and my father would carry me in his arms and take me to the first cart and he'd point to some tiny dark toy while I'd point to the biggest and most colorful. But my father would shake his head no. We'd move on to the next. And I'd point to another beautiful toy and he'd shake his head again and we'd move on. And we'd do that again and again until we had gone to each cart. And then he'd buy me some little gray toy I barely wanted and I'd start crying and he'd carry me back into the house. I always resented him for that. Hated him for that. And when I was 14, my father put me on a boat to America and said, goodbye, that's where you're going to live. I was 14. I hated him for that too. Not long after that, he got tangled in a fishing net that was being thrown into the water and his head hit his head on the side of the boat, and they never found him. Eight years from the day he sent me away, I returned to my hometown so my mother and sisters could meet my new family. It was during the holidays, and on 
On Christmas morning, I took your mother in my arms and carried her outside, and there they were, all the vendors, like they'd never left, with all their blue and red and beautiful toys, and, and your mother pointed to the brightest and prettiest, and anyone she pointed at, I bought for her. And when we came back in, our arms full with this, this rainbow of toys, my mother took one look and said, that's what your father wished he could do. But we barely had enough to buy food on Christmas. That's why he sent you away, so you can make for yourself a life he could never give you. I always thought my father was mean, hated him because he wouldn't give me anything. Turns out he was giving me all that he had. Talk about a father who will give you all that he has. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give to you? Gave you his Son, the jewel of heaven. Not only that, in the parable of the prodigal son, when the, when the older son is complaining because he's throwing a party for the prodigal, he says, my son... You've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. And that's what he desires to do. He desires to give you everything that he has. And sometimes, you know, all we want is like money or fame or something else that really is only going to last that long doesn't mean all that much when he wants to give us righteousness and peace and joy the fullness of his spirit the fullness of his presence you have a father who loves you beyond anything you can imagine and who desires to give you exceedingly abundantly above anything you can ask or think and so this is a happy father's day one true God, Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Would you stand with me? Those who are going to minister to people come down here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in case you're thinking about coming down and going, you know, my father really was not all that good, and what should I do about it? Uh, I'll just save you the trip. Call him. Call, call him today. <laughs> Write him a letter. You see, he was a human being. He's a human being. Nobody, nobody grows up. No, no little boy grows up. Man, I hope I'm going to be a bad father one of these days. I hope my kids are going to be disappointed in me. Uh-uh. Life in a fallen world's hard. Especially if it's without Jesus. God would like to spread some grace and some mercy into your life. Any need that you have. You don't, you don't just have to come about daddy issues. You could 
certainly come about anything because uh, your Father loves you. We're going to worship for a few moments. If you need to come, you come. If not, you worship. Be thankful. Be thankful for who you have. By His grace Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who sent his son into the world so that we could become his children his sons and daughters may the abundant love that he has for you resonate deeply in your heart may your worth your joy your purpose your meaning flow out of your relationship to him in Jesus Christ our Lord